0: Welcome to the podcast on the energy world in 2020. In this podcast, we will go through our in-focus report that we published at the start of January that identifies and analyzes the themes that we believe will shape the energy world in 2020. The report is organized into five chapters. And in this podcast, each of the service heads will take you through our views on crude markets, oil products, geopolitics, macro and natural gas. Each of these sections has a global overview and several key themes in the report, and we will take you through those in this podcast. We expect interactions between energy markets to be an important trend this year, so for the first time, our annual outlook includes a comprehensive coverage on natural gas markets along with oil and products. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. I will now take you through our global crude oil market overview. Crude markets are on a very strong footing in 2020. At least that's what we thought at the start of the year. But then the coronavirus hit and, of course, short-term fundamentals took a huge U-turn. We still remain positive on the physical fundamentals, particularly in the summer. We see much slower U.S. production growth, which we have revised down to 650,000 barrels per day year on year for this year. We are seeing continuing problems in other non-OPEC countries, such as Kazakhstan as well. OPEC remains extremely vigilant. They not only cut output uh, deeper in December for the first quarter, but given the downturn in demand due to the coronavirus, they are likely to cut production even more. However, None of this takes away from the fact that the outbreak of coronavirus has led us to reduce our demand outlook quite substantially compared to what we were expecting at the start of the year, which was an increase of about 1.1 million barrels per day. There's still a lot of uncertainty with regards to just how deep and how widespread this virus is. And we have now, reduced our demand forecast to about seven to eight hundred thousand barrels per day of year on year growth. And there could be further downside to that, at least in the short term. That said, our core view on crude markets, which is one of continued strong backwardation in Brent and Dubai, remains intact. This is because Libya continues to remain offline. There's no real solution in sight for that country, at least as of now. Moreover, Stocks remain low and spare capacity remains low at a time when we have 2.2 million barrels per day of new refining capacity coming online, all of which will require a lot of crude to get started. We also remain positive on WTI despite freight volatility, particularly in the summer months, which is when we expect Cushing stocks to get to tank bottoms, pushing WTI spreads to three-digit backwardation. All of this gives us the view that oil prices, particularly Brent, should trade in the 70s for much of this summer. But in the short run, given the coronavirus outbreak, prices are likely to trade in the 50s before rising materially in the latter half of the year. The other important point to bear in mind for the second half of 2020 is the potential for a very big Chinese government stimulus. We believe that China will not tolerate GDP growth of less than 6%, which means the upside to oil prices from current levels for the rest of the year remains extremely high as long as the virus is contained, which we believe as of now should be in the next couple of months. Volatility will be particularly high this year, given the heightened geopolitical tensions. And now to take you through all the geopolitical hotspots, be it in the Middle East, North Africa, or even Venezuela, we have our geopolitical expert, Richard Mallinson, to take you through the key themes. On
1: geopolitics, the overarching theme that we pick out for the year ahead is the continued US pullback from its traditional role as the guarantor of international peace and stability. This is something that's been going on for a while, but we saw it accelerate in 2019 and we think it's really going to dominate events for much of 2020. This is particularly visible in the Middle East, um, where the US has traditionally had a very, very prominent role. And of course the headlines have already been dominated by uh, the confrontation with Iran. A couple of years ago, the US was part of a multilateral deal on Iran's nuclear program, which brought a measure of stability to that relationship. Now we've seen a rapidly escalating confrontation. The killing of General Soleimani, a senior Iranian general at the start of the year, uh, looks on one level like a muscular intervention, but really is more of a knee-jerk action after ignoring months of provocation than a strategic move. And it is Tehran that still appears to have the strategic upper hand, choosing to gradually escalate its nuclear program Uh, to increase pressure, moving to try and use the protests in Iraq as an opportunity to pressure the US to withdraw its forces, and we think being very unlikely to come to the table for any kind of new negotiations with Washington uh, over a deal, which means sanctions will remain in place. It's not only in that relationship with Uh, Iran that we see instability. Right across the Middle East and North Africa, we're seeing uh, the US pullback, creating space for countries like Russia, Turkey and others to start to gain more influence. And that is uh, raising the prospect and the reality, as we've seen so far in January, of disruptions to production in Libya, in Iraq, as well as broader political ramifications. Instead of that traditional role, the US is very, very focused in as far as thinking about foreign policy at uh, its relationship with China. And this is no longer just a trade war. It's a much broader confrontation. And the two sides, we think, will spend several years trying to find some new way of accommodating one another. And that's going to have consequences for allies uh, and countries caught in the middle because this really is a global reordering. And that uh, is also because of the trade ramifications bringing with it an economic slowdown that we're seeing merging with local issues and stimulating protests which are driving further risks of probably mostly brief but potentially significant supply disruptions. The final topic that will undoubtedly dominate geopolitics in 2020 is the US presidential election. We're already into the Democratic primary contest, and we've got a number of candidates who could come through that to eventually challenge President Trump in the election proper. At the moment, we've seen the impeachment trial, we've seen a lot of partisanship, and I think that will carry over into a very bruising contest. It could be quite a tight race, uh, but importantly, I think, even if a Democrat comes out victorious, the reality is they're going to have focused much more on the domestic agenda. They will probably want to reintroduce uh, a much more diplomatic style, uh, try and rebuild relations with America's traditional allies, but I don't expect them to reverse the shift towards the US pulling back and reducing its willingness to commit strategically to trying to stabilize and secure regions around the world. Instead, we're going to see the continued rise of multipolarity, particularly the US-China relationship, but also Russia and other regional powers uh, muscling in. And I think that translates into instability uh, and a more complicated international landscape for several years to come.
0: And now back to fundamentals. We've had an extremely warm start to the winter in 2020, just as the outbreak of coronavirus has grabbed headlines everywhere. The transition to IMO 2020 has been a non-event because diesel demand simply hasn't received a boost. This all means that refining margins will remain under pressure for much of this year, and even in the summer, especially given our view that crude oil markets will remain tight for much of this year. I will now talk you through the key themes on our oil products views. 2020 is going to not be a particularly rosy year for oil products. This is because we have 2.2 million barrels per day of new refining capacity coming online on top of 1.7 million barrels per day of additions in 2019. Oil demand growth barely rose by 700,000 barrels per day last year. And with the coronavirus outbreak, is probably going to rise by similar amounts this year, despite our view that there are some green shoots visible in the broader economy and the Chinese government's uh, likelihood of a big stimulus package being announced. But we just have way too much refining capacity and too little crude. This has to be resolved through refinery closures. But as we've seen in the past, refinery closures are extremely political and difficult. And really, the only time refineries are forced to make such a choice is when they need to do big capital investment. With Tier 3 in the US, with further upgrades required for IMO 2020, this is a time when refineries really do need to make that decision. And we expect to see particularly European refining margins remain under extreme pressure for much of this year. In the near term, perhaps a little bit of a pullback in crude prices gives respite to margins and as we have refinery maintenance coming online, but the bigger picture doesn't change. The summer months will be challenging, especially if OPEC cuts continue at a time when more refining capacity is being added to the east. West is where the refineries are going to be under pressure and it is going to be those refineries which really are challenged to convert heavy feedstock to clean products that are going to suffer from weak refining margins. Complex refineries are also suffering because heavy crude oil prices remain extremely strong and high sulfur fuel oil prices have really started to take back up again as scrubber intake and ships go higher. VLSFO had been a winner for much of the last few months, which boosted simple refining margins. But even with VLSFO under pressure, as the Chinese government changes tax regimes to allow more VLSFO production, these guys are also going to struggle. So on the whole, we have a refining complex that is going to remain under pressure for the foreseeable future. We now have Yasser Elgindi, our Director of Global Macro, to take us through the key themes that will shape the global economy and demand.
2: 2019 for markets was really about massive uncertainty and about scaling the growing wall of worry that had been building up over the course of that year. Fear that the US-China trade spat was going to escalate, fears that the Fed would over-tighten on rates, squeezing liquidity, fears that the global manufacturing recession would invariably lead to an earnings recession and destroy the last vestige of hope for the economy, namely the consumer. But despite all the uncertainty and negativity coming into 2019, RISASCA assets still managed to rally with the S&P seeing one of its best performing years on record. Um, In fact, only 2013 saw a better performance than the 29% return in in, in 2019. And in terms of the net dollar amount, 2019 was the S&P's highest grossing year of the past 30. So, So coming into 2020, we had lots of reasons to be positive, as much of what hurt the economy last year was starting to stabilize, if not outright improve. First, the U.S. and China declared a ceasefire in their escalating, you know, confrontation by signing a phase one trade deal. And while short of a comprehensive deal, it would at least provide some certainty for corporates paralyzed uh, by the uncertainty uh, and, and had thus delayed making investment um decisions last year to start taking those decisions. Second, the Fed managed to pivot and introduced a trio of rate cuts and most importantly signaled that it is unlikely to hike rates for a very long time, stressing its willingness to accept higher rates of inflation if that should ever materialize in order to ensure a recovery in in manufacturing. Rates particularly their changes are important drivers of economic activity with about a one to two year lead. So the lagged effects of 2019's global easing cycle should be a powerful tailwind for 2020 and even into 2021. Um, And so importantly, both emerging markets and developed markets rates are falling. and, And for us, this is a synchronized global easing cycle which is broadening the scope for improvement in global growth. And finally, just beneath all the din, a fundamentally sound U.S. economy is humming along as the expansion continues, led by solid consumer spending and residential housing. Furthermore, we've seen a wave of global PMI reports released into the end of 2019 signal that economies over at overseas are at least basing, if not outright turning a corner, China included. That said, there is now, of course, a new headwind, um, namely the Wuhan virus. And congratulations to anyone that had global flu pandemic as their number one risk for 2020. Um, For now, it's, it's hard to model the full impact given all the unknown unknowns regarding the disease and its spread, and importantly, um, and, and perhaps more importantly, policymaker efforts to contain it, um, while demand is going to take a massive hit in the first half of twenty. We believe that recovery efforts, coupled with both fiscal and monetary stimulus, for from the Chinese should provide a backstop for growth in the second half of 2020 assuming that the virus is contained and not worse than previous global health risks like SARS or bird flu. The question now is whether China's mass isolation and quarantine efforts are working and how long it will be before making that call. Um, Clearly Risks remain, but we still think that the virus impact, at least for now, is more of a delay in our growth outlook than a derailment of it.
0: For the first time in our annual focus piece, we have incorporated our global view on natural gas. To take us through the key themes, we've now got our head of global gas, Trevor Sikorsky.
3: So the 2020 gas market outlook is one that is just unrelentingly bearish. Lots and lots of bearish stuff. We certainly, most of that coming as more U.S. supply is expected to hit the markets on the LNG front. We've got at least four big trains, two of those starting up at the beginning of the year. Uh, That's Cameron, that's Freeport, and then the third trains at each of those also, expected to come in. That's going to help swell supply again in the LNG market. And that is coming against a background where we think Asian demand, there will be some Asian demand growth, but generally it's just not going to be that strong. And we are going to see some reductions in some of those big Asian buyers. Where the growth will come from, probably China, but not as robust as we've seen in other years, generally because still uh, we think, you know, certainly a lot of the industrial demand. Growth in the Chinese market is going to be reasonably slow, a very, very key point for gas demand. But also because China is starting to run out of regas, it has a lot under construction. Most of that, however, only expected to come in at the end of the year. So it will not be that supportive, certainly for the first three quarters of demand growth. The other big grower probably in Asia will be India. But really, if you expect India to take more than three or four million tons, that's going to be at the very high end of those estimates. And so the world is going to be facing with some 25 or so million tons of additional supply, another heavy year uh, of oversupply going into that European market. Now, the European market's ability of to absorb all of that LNG is going to be really constrained. Part of that is because at the end of this Uh, at the end of the winter, we expect storage to be very, very high, higher than last year, probably by about 9 or 10 BCM. So uh, a lot of storage overhang means not a huge amount of injection capacity during the summer, and there will be a lot more LNG coming into that market. Um, We think they'll also have less coal-to-gas switch because we saw quite a bit of that in 2019. So a lot of that already realized and baked into the base, and it means growth on that demand side is going to be harder, and that does mean we're going to have to see turndowns on supply. Some of that turndown in supply will come from the LNG market. Some of it likely to come from pipes. Pipes though did have quite a tough time last year, and some of those pipeline numbers were already quite low, particularly Algeria. So we might not see that much flexibility. We think there probably will be a little bit more flex on the Russians. Certainly, um, the the Russians have started 2020, uh, not putting as much supply into the market as they maybe could have but they did defend their market share very very heavily in 2019 and we probably expect something similar in 2020. What all that means though of course is probably you're going to get to the point where the European market is going to have to say we don't want to take any LNG and that means reasonably low prices and probably prices low enough to close the arbitrage Window with U.S. Gas now U.S. Gas even with LNG does look like it's also going to be reasonably it's going to have a reasonably loose set of balances. It's going to start the year with quite a bit of gas still, or it's going to start the uh, injection season with quite a lot of gas still in storage, and it could see pressure if all of the gas that they have around in terms of production is not being turned into LNG. And that's one of the real risks for the market. And I think what you could see because of all of that is you could see a race to the bottom in prices. And that means prices getting pretty low globally, US prices below $2, and European and Asian prices potentially coming in uh, at three or slightly lower.
0: If the start of 2020 is anything to go by, this year is going to be action-packed. Heightened geopolitical risks, black swan disease events, the potential for refinery closures, all of these mean that price and spreads will be extremely volatile throughout this year. Underlying crude oil market fundamentals remain tight as OPEC are very much proactive in keeping stocks in check. But at the same time, you do have a lot of difficulty in navigating the demand outlook. While there are green shoots visible, the coronavirus is creating a lot of short-term uncertainty. At the same time, we have an extremely oversupplied gas market with global gas prices testing record lows, a trend we foresee will continue throughout this year. There is little incremental coal-to-gas switching capacity anyways. This means there is even more downside pressure on gas prices and NGL's prices, which means even lower U.S. production potentially for both gas and oil this year and into 2021. So a lot of moving parts and effectively a market where you would require participants to remain nimble Uh, because of how quickly things are changing, not to mention the U.S. elections and a whole slew of other elections, be it in Iran and other countries that are slated this year. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed us taking you through the key themes that will shape 2020. Please do go to energyaspects.com and download the report to get the comprehensive overview. Of course, we will continue to cover all these topics as they evolve through the year in our regular publications, which are the weeklies and the monthlies, but also the real-time email alerts. Thank you.